Court said, look, we're gonna, here, here's what we're going to do. We're going to say that if you want to put out an ad or spend money that's about an issue, that's not about a candidate, then, then you should be allowed to do that because that's just talking to the public, engaging in free speech rights. So the, the Supreme Court issued that decision, and that put caps on what you could contribute to a candidate or a political party, but uh, left open the possibility that issue ads really couldn't be capped in terms of how much money you could spend. Our next partner is Athletic Greens. I take AG1 by Athletic Greens literally every morning. I take it before I start my day, even before I have coffee. I gave it a try because I felt like my immune system was kind of shot and I had low energy in general. And it has really helped me feel like I am getting all of the nutrition I need. It makes me feel focused in the morning and energized and just ready to take on the day. And no wonder I feel so good. It's got 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients to improve gut health, mood, to boost energy. It's even making my skin look better. I've never been very good at taking supplements or vitamins, things like that. But AG1 makes it super easy. I just make a smoothie with it in the morning. And if I don't have time to do that, I just throw a scoop of powder and water and that's it. AG1 was designed with ease in mind so you can live a healthier and better life without having to do very much. It's my kind of product. I also love the single serving travel packs because when I'm away from home, it makes it easy to keep up with a routine keep my nutrition up, and stay healthy. If you're looking for an easier way to take supplements, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com drilled. That's athleticgreens.com drilled. Check it out. Hi, it's Amy here, and I'm excited to tell you about a new podcast from APM Studios and Western Sounds called Ripple. Such a good idea, this show. In the aftermath of major disasters, there is always a swarm of media attention. The public is captivated by breaking news, there's coverage and controversy, and then the cameras and the public just move on. But the stories are not finished. Ripple is a new series investigating the stories we were told were over. In season one, the reporting team traveled hundreds of miles across the Gulf Coast to learn the ongoing effects of the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which are still impacting many coastal residents more than a decade later. You can listen now to Ripple wherever you get your podcasts. That was Ben Foyer, chairman of the California Appellate Law Group 
talking about a Supreme Court case that's mostly been overshadowed by Citizens United, but really laid the groundwork for the expansion of corporate personhood. Buckley v. Vallejo came out in the wake of the Watergate scandal. In the course of investigating Nixon in the early 1970s, prosecutors had discovered that various company executives and trade groups had been in the habit of essentially paying Nixon to grease the wheels of government. Some of the documents that came out of Watergate turned up evidence that Nixon and his team had taken huge amounts of money in briefcases and safety <laughs> deposit boxes. Howard Hughes kept a locked safety deposit box of $200,000 that Nixon's uh, had access to. Briefcases full of cash. Yeah. So in 1971, Congress decided it needed to crack down on corporate and trade group contributions to political campaigns. It enacted the Federal Election Campaign Act of 1971, which set limits on the amount of money an individual could contribute to a single campaign and required reporting of contributions above a certain threshold amount. It also established the Federal Election Commission to enforce the law. In January 1975, a coalition of plaintiffs that included Senator James L. Buckley of New York filed suit in U.S. District Court alleging, among other things, that the contribution and expenditure limits violated the First Amendment. SCOTUS upheld the limits for campaign contributions, but not for political speech in general. The Supreme Court said, look, Congress has an important interest in protecting against corruption and the appearance of corruption. But there's no fundamental interest, at least in the Constitution, that says that Congress can equalize the power of different speakers, or that Congress has the ability to limit speech, to say, hey, you can't talk as much as you want with your own money. You can't spread your ideas because we think too many people are going to hear them. People might just believe your idea and not listen to other ideas. That's not within Congress's power. So the limits on advocating for issues and, and the caps on the amount of money that individuals were allowed to, to spend or contribute sort of went away. So why are we talking about a 1976 First Amendment decision? because it began a decades-long effort by some of the country's most powerful companies and industries to whittle away at the distinction between individual rights and corporate rights. This was the beginning of the idea that money equals speech and is therefore protected by the First Amendment, basically as long as that speech is not explicitly endorsing a political candidate. Now, the idea that corporations have free speech rights to say whatever they want has extended to climate change. This idea is at the core of Exxon's defense against securities and consumer fraud cases brought against the company by the New York and Massachusetts attorneys general, and of cases currently being brought against it by several cities, counties, and the state of Rhode Island to recover the costs of dealing with climate change, make it to trial, we should expect to see more of this free speech defense there too. By the time 2000 rolled around in the election of 2000, what was happening was there were extraordinary amounts of money that were called soft money that were, were going to groups that weren't disclosing where they were getting the money from, and they were spending their money very cleverly to essentially advocate for individuals to be elected, but without using what the court in Buckley v. Vallejo had identified as special magic words that really trigger the, the kind of regulation and show that you're 
expressly advocating for a candidate, not an issue. So Buckley v. Vallejo said that you, if you use words like vote for or elect or defeat, those are the words that indicate that, hey, this is it's an expenditure, but it's, it's, it, we're going to treat it kind of like a contribution because you're really advocating for this exact candidate and you're not really talking about an issue. There were these independent groups that were taking huge amounts of money and either doing other things with them, like voting drives or paying for administrative costs rather than speech, or putting out ads. For example, there was an ad in the 2000 election um, put out by a group that was favoring uh, a George Bush that said, that said, don't get gored at the gas pump. So they didn't use anything. They didn't say vote against gore, defeat gore, vote for Bush. They just said don't get gored at the gas pump. That allowed them to then pay for this ad with contribution, with, with money from anywhere. So Buckley v. Vallejo said spending money in support of a particular political idea is a form of protected free speech, no matter who's doing it. And the U.S. courts have for a really long time said that corporations are essentially just groups of people and therefore do have constitutional rights. The courts decided that as early as the late 1800s. And more recent cases have only handed more rights to corporations. Now, 40 years after the Buckley v. Vallejo decision, ExxonMobil is even alleging that investigations by the New York and Massachusetts AGs and the 16 cost recovery cases filed against it are a conspiracy to quash its First Amendment rights specifically to stop it from saying whatever it likes about climate change, even if that includes undercutting science it knows to be true. One of the things this podcast tries to do is unpack the history and complexities of how we understand climate change today and how we got to where we are. And this is a key part of it. So we're going to do a deep dive into how exactly we got to the point where free speech could feasibly extend to climate denial. It's complicated and a little dense. So if you have questions or anything else to add, go to drilledpodcast.com and drop us a line. Or you can tweet at me at Amy Westervelt. Okay, here we go. I'm Amy Westervelt, and this is Drilled. This is something that I think... um, Americans generally need to be concerned about the acts of a big corporation uh, seeking to stomp out or, or, or stamp out the efforts of one little attorney general from asking questions. It's as simple as that. Exxon itself has taken the step, rather extraordinary, of filing an action against me to say that I don't have the authority to ask questions. The day that happens in that con- in this country, that's a serious problem. So you know what's really galling? You'll love this. Exxon's using the First Amendment. That we are, that I am interfering with Exxon's First Amendment right. I don't know how they get there, but that's what they've articulated, and they're coming at us. That's Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healey talking about Exxon's First Amendment suit against her last year. The company alleged that the state's fraud probe against it infringed on its First Amendment rights. The Massachusetts court affirmed Healey's right to investigate Exxon, and Exxon appealed that decision to the Supreme Court, which declined to hear the case. But Exxon has filed multiple other complaints along First Amendment grounds. Here's Michael Berger, executive director of Columbia University's Sabin Center for Climate Change Law, explaining where we are right now. Exxon has filed a number of different challenges to the investigations undertaken by the Massachusetts and New York State uh, Attorneys General in a number of different courts. Uh, they filed challenges in the federal district court in Texas. They filed a lawsuit in uh, New York State. 
uh, in, in federal district court in New York, and they filed another case in Massachusetts. The Supreme Court denied cert without comment um, of Exxon's request to appeal a decision that came out of the Massachusetts court system. Since a lot of these suits are still active, it's important to understand the recent history of these sorts of cases where corporations invoke the First Amendment. Buckley v. Vallejo was important, but this idea didn't necessarily start or end with that case. This is John John Enton is a constitutional law expert and a professor at Case Western Reserve University Law School. He was a law clerk to then-judge Ruth Bader Ginsburg when she was on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. The, the, the basic question is, do corporations have legal rights? And the answer is yes. Um, the Supreme Court has said for a long time that corporations are legal persons. And I think the, the big case on that was in the 1880s. There, there were some earlier cases that sort of hinted at that. And so the main modern cases on on corporate speech rights have come, I think, in the uh, in the advertising and commercial speech area. In in those cases, the Supreme Court has said that commercial speech advertising enjoys and here's here's where things get a little fuzzy uh, the court back in the 1970s said that commercial speech enjoyed qualified first amendment protection and in more recent cases the court has suggested that maybe commercial speech should get more than qualified protection maybe even as much protection as core political speech okay so the court draws a distinction between commercial speech and political speech and political speech is actually granted more rights. Remember that. But in the commercial speech area, generally, the, the Supreme Court has said that false or misleading speech is not protected. Of course, the First Amendment was also invoked in the Hobby Lobby case, when Hobby Lobby wanted to opt out of the federal mandate that health insurance needed to include coverage for contraceptives. They cited religious reasons, and the Supreme Court ruled in their favor. So there may be a question about how far the, the reasoning in, in Hobby Lobby might apply, say, to a publicly traded corporation. And the issue there was was religious rights, not you know, not more general speech rights. But the Supreme Court said that, that uh, Hobby Lobby as a closely held corporation was was entitled to invoke uh, religious rights, uh, free exercise. Why are we talking about the Hobby Lobby birth control case? What could freedom of religion possibly have to do with climate change? Allow me to remind you of our friend, coal lobbyist Fred Palmer from season one. You're doing God's work. Every time you turn your car on and you burn fossil fuels and you put CO2 in the air, you're doing the work of the Lord. Absolutely. That's the system. That's the ecological system we live in. Okay, so it's a huge stretch, and no one is making a religious claim yet. Plus, if they did, there's an equal claim to be made for the religious mandate to be stewards of the earth. But the point here is that the First Amendment can be invoked in lots of different ways, and every case sets some sort of precedent for future cases. Hey, Drilled listeners, 
taking a quick break here to let you know a little bit more about our membership program. We do get some amount of grant funding to keep Drilled going, but your support would allow us to do more reporting, more collaborations, more investigative series, all that stuff. To join the membership program, go to criticalfrequency.org join. It's $4.99 a month, and that gets you access to bonus content, sneak previews. You'll get an ad-free feed, which might not always be the case here, unfortunately. And you'll get access to all the other shows on the Critical Frequency Network, too. Next week's bonus episode features Brian McInerney, who you heard from a tiny bit in season one. When I first started doing this and I would talk about climate change, it was like another subject, like geology, hydrology, meteorology, and it was well-received. And then at some point it got politicized. He's a hydrologist in Utah who speaks candidly about what happened when climate change started to get political. It's really interesting, and I think you'll like it. So again, to sign up, go to criticalfrequency.org join. Thanks for your support. It really means a lot. Okay, back to the show. Mr. Olson. Are you taking the position that there is no difference in the First Amendment rights of an individual? A corporation, after all, is not endowed by its creator with inalienable rights. So is there any distinction that Congress could draw between corporations and natural human beings for purposes of campaign finance. What the court has said in the First Amendment context, New York Times versus Sullivan, Grossgene versus Associated Press, and over and over again is that corporations are persons entitled to protection under the First Amendment. The best known case around this idea of corporate First Amendment rights is, of course, Citizens United, which undoubtedly also helped the Hobby Lobby case. If you don't know the story, here's a quick summary. In the early 2000s, Congress passed the McCain-Feingold Act, which basically tightened up election law again and cracked down on political contributions. Then, during the 2008 primaries, Citizens United was a group that was against Hillary Clinton, and they made a whole crooked Hillary movie. Who is Hillary Clinton? She's continually trying to redefine herself and figure out who she is. Um, At least with Bill Clinton, he was just, you know, good time Charlie. Hillary's got an agenda. Hillary is really the closest thing we have in America to a European socialist. If you thought you knew everything about Hillary Clinton, wait till you see the movie. Hillary, the movie, on DVD now. The Federal Election Commission said this movie violated election law. There's this McCain-Feingold provision that says you can't do that as a corporation. And that, that's how the lawsuit came about. So it went up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, look, that kind of limitation doesn't work. If the corporation or union or any other grouping of people that get together to do something, those groupings, those associations have uh, First Amendment rights, just like they always have, and other kind of uh, uh, constitutional rights, because they're just groups of people, and people don't lose those rights simply because they decide to act together as a corporation or as a partnership or as a union, which is just in many ways, in theory, a grouping of employees. As long as the, co- the corporation or union isn't coordinating with the candidate, that is, as long as it's an independent group, 
um, and, and not working with the candidate, then it's just like any other person. It's just engaged in spending expenditures, and that's protected activity. Despite this history of steadily expanding corporations' First Amendment rights, a distinction still remains between political speech and commercial speech and between any sort of protected speech and fraud. Should any of Exxon's claims actually make it to the Supreme Court, that will be the key question. So there's a whole series of areas in which corporations have had their First Amendment rights recognized. That doesn't necessarily tell us, however, the circumstances in which a corporation could be held liable for false or misleading speech, particularly if the argument they're going to make in these cases almost certainly is we're not engaged in commercial speech in the sense that we're not advertising and we're not proposing a commercial transaction. The Supreme Court has generally not said that you have to show an actual victim of deception. I mean, I think in this situation, you know, the states are, are going to say, look, but at least some of these companies knew what they were saying was not true and that we know that they knew that because we have... Uh, obtained information about what they knew at the time that they were making various sorts of statements. And so I think the case, you know, these cases are likely to turn on tangible evidence. Foyer says there was one recent case where the Supreme Court validated a person's right to lie under the First Amendment. An individual was wearing medals, military medals, that he didn't earn. Uh, and Congress had passed a law saying, hey, it's a crime to wear military medals that you didn't earn. And also to claim that one military honors that you didn't earn. Uh, and the Supreme Court said, no, uh, you have a free speech right to lie. So in terms of what would happen in, a, in this kind of Exxon situation, you know, there, there's a tension between the, at least an individual, that was an individual wearing medals, an individual's First Amendment right to lie, and a corporation's First Amendment right to defraud people. But that is a pretty big difference. The, the court uh, often looks to history when determining if there are going to be limits on First Amendment rights. The historical common law was, was the, the law of England at the time uh, the United States was founded in the 18th century. And at common law, there were certainly limits on speech related to fraud. You couldn't defraud people, you couldn't lie to people and then get them to buy your product. That could absolutely be prosecuted or, or prevented. So it, it seems to me likely, and you never know, but it seems to me likely that there is, and the court would find, that there's a pretty big difference between allowing somebody to lie about military honors he personally won and allowing businesses to simply lie about their products uh, in a way that is fraudulent. You know, look, it, it, the reality is if Exxon knew about harm caused by its product and didn't disclose that harm to people or made affirmative statements that lied about what that harm is, that's really no different than any other situation in which a manufacturer has a product that causes injury and the manufacturer lies or covers up uh, the injury caused by the product. Um, if the manufacturer knew about it or had reason to know about it, generally speaking, the manufacturer is going to be able to be held liable for it. The fact that the Supreme Court declined to hear the first of Exxon's countersuits could mean something about their view of Exxon's First Amendment defense, or it could mean nothing. There's nothing in the First Amendment that prohibits you from being probed. 
so that, that, that could have a lot to do with it as well. Enton says the fact that the lower courts have all rejected these claims so far could also play into it. I mean, you don't have to have a conflict in, in the lower courts for the Supreme Court to take it, but it certainly helps make the case seem or make the issue seem more worthy of Supreme Court review. And Berger thinks we may well see a Supreme Court case out of these claims. So this court issue that Exxon is raising in all of these cases, whether the investigations by the attorneys general violate their constitutional rights, um, and that it's all part of this political conspiracy to quash their, their free speech, may yet make it to the Supreme Court, or at the very least, Exxon, assuming it loses at the Second Circuit, will have the opportunity to petition the Supreme Court again And that time, the petition would be on the substantive issues. Even if it makes it that far, though, it's not a slam dunk for Exxon. The First Amendment does not protect corporations uh, who are committing fraud. It doesn't protect corporations who are committing securities fraud. And those are the, that's the nature of these investigations. The underlying question, then, is where the line between political speech and deception lies and just how much proof attorneys would need to show that Exxon was not, in fact, sharing opinions or political ideas, but telling the public and investors an entirely different story than the one it knew to be true. And there you have it, the weird and wild history of dollars as speech, fraud as political expression, and our always evolving understanding of the First Amendment. One interesting thing to add is that the Chevron attorney who's been speaking on behalf of all the oil companies as these cost recovery cases go to court is Ted Boutros, whose specialty is the First Amendment and free speech. He's even the guy defending CNN against the White House on First Amendment grounds. That's it for this time. We'll see you in two weeks with another episode. And next month, we'll have a whole new series for you. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Drilled is produced and distributed by Critical Frequency. Reporting is done by me. Our story consultant is Rika Murthy. Our theme music is by Martin Wissenberg. Additional music in this episode is by David Whited and Damian Verrett. Mixing is done by Elliot Peltzman. Our cover art is by Lucas Lisikowski. Drilled is made possible in part by a generous grant from the Institute for Governance and Sustainable Development. We really appreciate their support. You can find Drilled wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to rate and review the podcast. It helps us find new listeners and fight climate deniers. Thanks a lot. See you next time.